Welcome everybody to the podcast. I am so excited to be here today in uh, beautiful, sunny New York City to uh, hang out with uh, our two guests. Uh, we're going to talk about um, a vast amount of research that these gentlemen have uh, conducted. Uh, over 250 uh, papers published. Probably almost 300, more than 300 between us. Yeah. Wow. Well, we're going to talk about. Uh, we're going to we're going to focus it a little bit because your your research has been you know far and wide. But we're going to talk about. Uh, the microbiome and data and the marriage of the two and how that focuses us into precision medicine and, and how that all works and uh, precision medicine solutions we're going to talk about longevity and uh, Thorne's partnership with longevity and my guests today are uh, Joel Dudley and Chris Mason uh, Dr. Joel Dudley is an associate professor of genetics and Genomic Sciences and Founding Director of the Institute for Next Generation Healthcare at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. His work is focused on the nexus of omics, digital health, artificial intelligence, scientific wellness, and healthcare delivery. And his work has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Scientific American, MIT Technology Review, CNBC, and other popular media outlets. Uh, he is uh, a recent author of a book called Exploring Personal Genomics. There we it's go. It's a couple of years old now at this yeah. point, but so we delve into into genomics yeah. here as well. Yeah, yeah. and uh, he has his BS in microbiology from Arizona State University and an MS and PhD in biomedical informatics from Stanford University of Medicine. Um, and just from that, you you can kind of figure when we're talking about data and medicine, uh, these are the right guys here. Uh, my other guest here is Dr. Chris Mason, associate professor at Weill Cornell Medicine and director of the World Quant Quantitative Prediction Initiative with appointments at the Tri Institutional Program in Computational Biology and Medicine between Cornell uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center and Rockefeller University the Sandra and Edward Meyer Cancer Center, and the File Family, Brain, and Mind Research Institute. That's a mouthful, dude. Yeah, that's a lot. That's wow. Uh, Chris uh, completed his uh, dual BS in genetics and biochemistry at uh, the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Go Badgers. Yeah, right. uh, and his PhD and postdoc in genetics from Yale and a fellowship at Yale Law School as well. Um, so these guys need no hobbies, although I know they have hobbies, which is crazy. Um, I, I'm really happy to have you guys here. This is this is just great, and uh, we get to talk a little bit about the microbiome. And uh, if you've seen a Dove commercial lately, you've seen something about the microbiome. They don't tell you what it is; they right. just <laughs> say it's this protective layer. At least when they're talking about it on the skin. Um, for the beginner. Who wants to grab this? Uh, what is the microbiome? Sure. Um, uh, and hi, this is Chris Mason again. Really a pleasure to be here. So thanks for having us. And the microbiome is, as the name implies, it's the all the microorganisms that make up an entire biome, essentially the ecosystem that's in and on and also around you. Everything that's microscopic, that's living or mediating what happens in that ecosystem is part of that of the microbiome. And so what's extraordinary is that we always have known that there's been bacteria at this point really, you know, for hundreds of years that we've studied microbes. Um, you know, so we know that there is a large, you know, essentially panoply of this diversity of all these little species in and on us and around us. But only in the past really few years have we been able to very exquisitely map who is there and then also what are they doing in terms of these microbes. 
they're in our gut, they're in our skin, they're obviously in our mouth, really all over our bodies, but they not only you know control you know, what happens for sort of healthy skin and healthy guts, but also for obviously they can give you disease. And so it's really understanding them as an entirely new ecosystem that mediates both health and disease. So they're not just along for the ride. Right, now, yeah. if anything, uh, you know, there are some people who joke that are microbiologists that you know humans are really just a carrier for the microbes, and we're just hanging. We're you know really just doing their favors uh, for them, and that we're just uh, you know, floating around as microbial sort of substrates. But I think that's a little bit too far. There, you know, if you have I, to, I don't know. That's kind of where I'm leaning these days. <laughs> so, I mean, they're, but they're you can. It's hard to um, understate their importance because. Uh, they're in tight coordination with your immune system, with your vasculature system, or like, you know, essentially inflammation is mediated often through host and microbial interactions. And then just in general, obviously, you know, we think about getting sick, we think of our immune system. So that's a very obvious place that they interact, but they also, they create and make small molecules. And, and one estimate is that about a third of all the small molecules in your blood right now are either made by your microbes or processed by them when you eat something. And we're talking small molecules we're talking about? As it could be, you know, uh, pharmacological, any drugs that you might take. So it could be something as simple uh, as a, it could be a chemotherapy drug, but it could be as simple as how aspirin is processed, uh, you know, in your body. So, mm -hmm. the, or even estrogen compounds, for example, if you're worried about how much estrogen is in your body, if you just had, say, breast cancer, or just in general worried about having too much estrogen, you have to understand that in the context of what your microbes are making and processing as well. Yeah, and it's a, it's a true symbiosis because uh, there are a lot of things we eat that provide us with uh, nutrition, but only because they're broken down by bacteria, right? So there's various fibers or very mm -hmm. complex carbohydrates that would simply pass through us in a non-nutritive sort of way if we didn't have these bacteria that would break it down into the smaller things like short-chain fatty acids, which have tons, of, a whole host of uh, physiological effects that are, that are both positive and negative. And not too many years ago, that was pretty much the, the thought pattern there was just, uh, you know, okay, you, you take in nutrients, you do what you're going to do with them, poop out the rest, uh, there you go. And now we know that there's so much more uh, yeah. metabolic activity going on. Yeah, you don't just treat, if you take antibiotics, it's not just for a few species, it's really for thousands of species that could be uh, in you and on you that, that are going to be influenced by it. And the other thing that's interesting is even drugs that you take just for, say, your own uh, disease, like a human disease, something like depression or anxiety, neuropsychiatric drugs, uh, another paper that was just published this year showed that about a, a quarter of them also changed the growth rate of bacteria in your gut. So, you know, even if you're taking a drug for something that's extremely human of a trait, like, you know, depression or something yeah. in your mind, uh, it will also influence your gut microbes. So it's a real, it's a real um, dynamic and tightly interwoven ecosystem. And, and we're making a lot of neurotransmitters in our gut too, so you've got that interplay with, uh, with the, the microbes that are there too. Yeah, often called oh. the second brain. Uh, yeah. You know. um, so when we talk about the microbiome, it's really easy to, to start thinking about it being a static kind of a situation, but it, it's not static, it's very fluid, right? Mm -hmm. How quickly can it change? The microbiome can change quite rapidly. Um, you have to understand that you know, within the microbiome itself, like it's easy to think of it as just bacteria, mm -hmm. but it's bacteria, fungi, and also I think an underexplored area that will become more important over the next few years is the bacteriophages or the sort of bacterial viruses mm -hmm. that are sort of in, in the mix. So there's this you know constant, uh, not battle if you will, but exchange of uh, influences between you know, fungi, bacteria, bacteriophages, um, that um, you know, minute by minute, hour by hour, right? These yeah. things are constantly interacting with one another, and there's small small shifts in, in the microbiome 
happening, irrespective of you know food that's being brought in mm-hmm. to the body. Yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, there's uh, and that one estimate is there's ten times as many phages as there are bacteria, uh, and so there it's there much like we're often interfacing with viruses and, and battling them or, or at least controlling them. Bacteria are doing the same thing, so you know it, it, it can change extremely fast. If you've ever had you know, traveler's diarrhea, you can know how fast, you know, your microbiome can change. <laughs> yeah. So it can be a matter of really just a function of uh, tens of minutes, and you can have a really dramatic different uh, state. So so at least 10 times as many uh, microorganisms in the gut than we have human cells, and 10 times as many phages yeah, or phages been, uh, than, than bacteria. So. Yeah, there's a lot of estimates of how many how many cells are in our body are bacterial, and so some yeah. early estimates were 10 times as many, more recent ones are maybe two to three times as many. Mm-hmm. But regardless, there's tens of trillions of them, uh, and they're very mm-hmm. important. And phages are estimated to be equally uh, sort of a larger number relative to bacteria. So actually, phage researchers often joke that you know that bacteria are just there for the phages to control. The phages really control the world, mm-hmm. and some people that are microbiologists think that bacteria control the world, and then you know anthropologists think it's human. So it's an ongoing debate. But and then Beyonce, yeah, right, right. Yeah. she's in charge of everything. Yeah, yeah basically. But but it's um but you know these are you know extremely complex ecosystems yeah. that are tightly interwoven that we really have not been able to see until we've been able to sequence them and actually map them only in the past few years. So if we can change the microbiome um, on, and purposefully change the microbiome, um, can we make lasting changes in, in the microbiome with lifestyle supplementation, whatever, or does the microbiome revert back to the, the person's normal, whether that's a good normal or a bad normal? Uh, it, it can be, in, I mean, definitely can be influenced by what you eat, what you do, your lifestyle uh, can be big factors. Obviously, antibiotic use can dramatically change things. It's the equivalent of like a forest fire uh, to what's there, and it depends on what grows back. So it, it can for sure be influenced both positively and negatively. And what's extraordinary is that it is, you know, it's an influence also of your my, my, you know, gut microbes, your gut intestinal flow, uh, mm-hmm. sort of dynamics and shape and structure, uh, and also, you know, what else you're doing and eating. So they're all interrelated, and then, of course, your immune system. So all those things are at play. So some people, you know, you, a lot of probiotics you have to take on a daily basis because they don't really colonize. They don't, they kind of, they come through, they do some some beneficial um, sort of activities, but then they're just gone. And so we've seen, you know, in other published clinical trials and some work we've done here at Longevity, that, you know, some people seem to persist, like we, we do a, our suggested change, and you can see it 30 days later, some of it has stayed. But in most clinical trials and, and work we've seen, a lot of people... Uh, you know, you need generally daily uh, you know, ingestion of something like a probiotic or mm. a, a prebiotic to make sure it maintains its efficacy. Yeah, I think there's actually extreme conservation of microbiome, even across species. I remember a paper about looking at uh, bear phylogeny. If, uh, this was a science paper many years ago. I don't know if it held up over the time, but uh, we looked at the microbiome of, of bear species, essentially, and the microbiome of the uh, panda bear still had uh, sort of remnants of that it had evolved, at least from carnivores at one point. It, it appeared to have some vestigial uh, microbiome remnants from a previous sort of carnivorous uh, uh, you know, existence, or at least its ancestors' existence. But I, I like to think of the microbiome myself as sort of this, uh, if you could sort of quantify the microbiome somehow and put it on a topographic map, there's uh, different energy states, if you will. Like, and it, 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 it is a system that tries to maintain a homeostasis, right? There's as much as possible. But we're given enough activation energy, like uh, antibiotic, or an extreme illness, or a, or, or a 
a severe overgrowth of a, you know, then then you can make these big state changes to a, to really shift the microbiome to another state. To go from sort of a, a peak of a top of a mountain to sort of healthy yeah. and fall into a valley where you get, it's hard to get back out. So, mm-hmm. yeah. but generally, uh, the the body is generally geared towards homeostasis. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, absent any big change or right. or a disruption. Yeah. So, are there consistent patterns or correlations between the microbiome and specific health conditions? What do you guys see? Uh, there's probably too many right now. I would say, and, this, and it, it's, it's every day. There's this happens. Yeah. Well, this happens for a number. This happened yeah. with genetics. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, it came out. You went from sort of candidate gene studies to a much higher dimensional measure where you could measure many, many more things. It becomes easier to correlate. Right. And things, um, things pop up. Things uh, you know, almost randomly. So, uh, not to say that these correlations have been found are random, but but when you have this ability to create a really high dimensional measurement where you're measuring millions of different things it becomes easier to associate them statistically mm-hmm. but you know the challenge is now drilling down into causal you know mechanisms between um, microbiome and so there's a lot of associations I said there's a smaller number of causal uh, mechanisms that have been elucidated um, but but there are, but that's also a growing number of sort of causal mechanisms that are being elucidated elucidated between microbes and, and health I mean some of the most notorious ones are clostridium difficile or, or C diff infections that are very uh, intransigent and really hard to get rid of, uh, and often can be you know need to be treated with either transplants or surgeries or you know really s- severe you know bacteria that give you really strong risk for dysbiosis and even disease. Mm-hmm. Um, you know Heliobacter pylori is another classic example where it links for ulcers. Like that people used to think that ulcers were just caused by stress and say, well, go you know it's just your, your job is uh, too stressful. Then H pylori was established as a potential causative agent, but this is actually one of the most important features of longevity and also the field mm-hmm. is that. If you look at how many people actually have H. pylori, Heliobacter pylori, inside them, it's really, it's, you know, it's most hundreds, of us, right? hundreds of thousands of people. Like, you know, yeah. millions of people have it, but the number of people with active ulcers is, is a, a fraction, less than a percent of, of those people carrying it. So yeah. it's not, it, you know, we've learned very exquisitely that it's not just do you have this bacterium, but which particular strain, mm-hmm. what else, what are the other functional elements it's carrying, what phages, for example, mm-hmm. has it interacted with? And, and the simple idea is just like E. coli. We hear about E. coli outbreak in lettuce, and mm-hmm. almost everyone has E. coli in them, and often sure. sometimes on them. But not everyone's you know sick, right? So you have to be very careful, and which is what we've really engineered at Longevity is to make sure we're using the best methods for strain level identification because it's it you can't just say I have this species or even sometimes the strain level uh, can have some very var- variance to it. So you want to make sure that what you what we see as an association is really tied to the most accurate strain level identification we can get, and then also a functional readout of what is it likely doing in someone. And that's where I think you'll start to get away from the spurious associations and have a much more ability to see what's driving someone's uh, mm-hmm. any sort of biology. I think another example of a causal mechanism that's at least been partially elucidated is around um, um, microbiome and um, non-nutritive sweeteners and blood sugar control. So there was right. a, now, now this has to hold up in replication, right. and I'm not right. sure of the status of that, but there was a previous uh, epidemiological sort of association between in, uh, consumption of diet soda and obesity and there's all kinds of theories about you know was it because they eat more calories overall because they think they can because they have the, a whole bunch of yeah, uh, yeah. great stories I'm about doing this I'm doing this great thing yeah, this healthy thing yeah. so I can do some other stuff no a lot but, of these just those stories that kind of made sense right, yeah. um, or seemed rational but then there's a paper that came out um, I think it was last year or a year before that where they actually showed that Certain microbes, when they digested uh, NutraSweet, would produce uh, huge quantities of acetate, I believe, uh, as a byproduct, and that high quantities of acetate, and when they were absorbed into the bloodstream, could, in certain individuals, uh, change insulin sensitivity and glucose control. 
that is fascinating. It really is. Uh, and, and it's really easy to fall into when you're, you're keeping track of this. It's really easy to fall into the trap of, of seeing an association and going, aha, ah, that's the aha moment, yeah, uh, and not seeing the complexity of all this. Uh, it, or, it's, yeah, there was one, they, everyone has this dream, and everyone wants a magic pill that can lose weight or, uh, or you know, can change your entire biochemistry, but it's going to be usually an ecosystem, and that's, uh, yeah. you know, that's best exemplified by what are called fecal microbiome transplants, is that one of the best treatments for some really uh, C. diff infections is to actually transplant not a species, not even a collection of species, but the entire ecosystem yeah. Uh, yeah. to someone's gut. It doesn't always work, but it's a generally pretty extraordinarily high success rates uh, as a therapy. It has the unfortunate name of a FMT or fecal microbiome transplant. They could have called it, you know, gut donation or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Available for the dinner table, but it's, uh, that's just that's the medical term. That's just what it is. Yeah. Yeah, and, and of course, pharmaceutical companies are trying to figure out how do we monetize poop? Yes, yes, right, how do we right, do this? Right, right. Well, there's actually um, yeah, one crowdfunding campaign called the, the you know, basically they needed to get donors, so they offered $13,000 a year if you could donate regularly. And, and if you lived in Boston, uh, uh, basically for, you know, just to donate your stool, you throw it away anyway, but they'll, they'll take it and, and, and use it and make sure, make sure they could use it for, for donors. But you had to be, you had to fit the criteria of being a, a healthy donor, right? Right, right. Yeah, was, but uh, again, What's what is that? You know, yeah. what is a healthy donor? How do how do you possibly get that? Uh, well, yeah, and this know. to some degree is what a lot of the discussions we've had uh, in starting longevity and thinking about this is and work that's come from Joel's lab and my lab is the best understanding of what is healthy is, is to get as drilled down as possible on someone's individual health trajectory because mm-hmm. it's like the perfect genome. Like who has the perfect genome, right? Is it Beyonce? Her DNA is perfect. Maybe she's the only one, but mm-hmm. for everyone else, there's no such thing as the perfect DNA or the perfect genome. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, you know, it, it doesn't, it, the question is, we all get, you know, mutations, we all have variations in us, but do they change over time is really the most important question, not do you fit some perfect ideal of a healthy collection of species in your gut. You know, we've already discussed there are some outliers that then things can cause disease. Obviously, you don't want Ebola if you find it in your body, and there's clear sort of disease-causing uh, pathogens. But in general, anything that's not explicitly pathogenic is something that might be just be a commensal. Yeah, yeah and then this is, I think, a good time to point out the importance of host genetics, which yeah. does play a role in, in your microbiome, yeah. right? So the yeah. same exact microbiome. Mm-hmm. So if I, if I were able to clone Chris's microbiome, which since I have, I have Crohn's disease myself, so I have, and I have genetic factors that give me Crohn's disease, and I would implant that into my gut, I may still have Crohn's disease. Because uh, of your because genetics. Because of my genetics. And, and how they're expressed, and, yeah. yeah. And in fact, there was a another sort of mechanistic paper which dove into this where the commensal bacteria appear to be passing via sort of a lipid vesicle to the host immune system which is think of it as a hall pass mm-hmm. saying um, hey I'm, I'm cool here yeah. you know here Let take this little packet of information they're not really quite sure what's in the vesicle or what was what the signaling molecule is but in an in individual with, with Crohn's I think it was a nod 2 or an ATG 16L1 mutation Basically, it was affecting the autophagy mechanisms, and that vesicle was not able to transport across the small intestine and make it to the uh, immune cell. So basically, that hall pass never got to the it hall got monitor. revoked, and yeah. then and then yeah. it, uh, then you adopt a, a sort of a pro-inflammatory, you know, antimicrobial mm-hmm. stance against that. Mm. Well, you guys have tested the microbiome of many places, uh, including the New York City subway system, mm-hmm. which I'm fascinated by. <laughs> <laughs> Um, anybody that's been in the New York subway system, uh, especially in the summer, yeah. um, it's, it, ha- it definitely has its own, uh, it, it's own living text. Flavor, <laughs> smell, it's, it's a, it's an ecosystem. Already. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so, so you found, you found that there was this entire ecosystem there and, um, scary as it sounds, 
Um, what did you find from that research that informs you about what you're doing uh, for humans? Yeah, there's a few few things about that work that was um, you know very novel at the time, but the lessons from it uh, you know persisted to this day and will for a long time. And that's the one of it is just the importance of how we assayed the the microbiome at the time and what's called metagenomics profiling. And what that means is meta is you know all encompassing of all the genomes. So it, it, DNA from any species that's present on a surface, we take the fragments of DNA, map it to a database of all known species, and see what's there. And so What's important about that is almost all, all, almost all prior work in microbiome and bacteriology did something that was just much more focused called uh, 16S profiling, where you only look at essentially one small uh, gene that's called a ribosomal RNA as a sort of surrogate for the entire ecosystem. But it's very much like looking at the forest, you know, from the 30,000 feet. You can just see general features, but you miss all the fine-grained detail of what's there. And it also, it only looks at bacteria right. and archaea, whereas we want to talk about everything. With a fungi, we want to look at phages. We can see human DNA that's there. So even the leftover human DNA, we actually could reconstruct what neighborhood you were in, whether you were in Harlem or Chinatown. We could see based on the human DNA that was left on the surfaces. So you, know, you can look wow. at all fragments of DNA, and really all kingdoms of life uh, should should be in play when you build any medical model. And this right, is something yeah. Joel and I both believe and build a lot of algorithms around is that every piece, every molecule coming from any species in your body could be potentially relevant for your health or disease trajectory. So that, and that, that was what we you know, pioneered for that study. And it was the, at its time, uh, was probably the largest metagenomic study uh, with that many samples or 1,500 samples that every single subway station in triplicate did parts mm -hmm. of the Gowanus Canal. Uh, so we've, we have built this genetic map of a city, and we're not now expanded that to about 70 other cities around the world. But the other th great thing about this, the data I loved is that on average, if you take any given sample and say, okay, I've got these millions of fragments of DNA that I've now sequenced, where, where do they land? Are some of them bacteria, some of them are viruses? What percentage do we see? And on average, about half of the DNA from every given sample had been matched no known species, had never been seen before. So you know, floating around the subway system are all these pieces of DNA that we don't yet know to whom they belong. Is it bacteria? Mm -hmm. Is it a virus? We literally don't know because it has never been seen before. Uh, and we yeah. can make and guesses, but it's the amount that's left to discover is staggering. It, it really is, yeah. And, and if you were just if you were doing 16s, yeah. you're you're basically you're narrowing your focus so much so. just on bacteria, and not just on bacteria, but it's it's those bacteria that you're kind of looking for, right? Right, yeah, that are in the database. Yeah. So, uh, and so there, just to give you as a comparison, if you use 16s on the same sample, extract DNA, and put do these two assays, 16s or shotgun metagenomics. Yeah. 16 ounce sort of look like 98, 99% of everything is known. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's true because, it, you know, you'll find a lot of things with that very small assay that are already known, but you'll miss, you know, really thousands of species that you, you cannot see with that method. I, I don't think it's a stretch to say I, that we're almost starting over again in the microbiome. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously, you know, what was it, you know, how many years ago that 16 ounce really became prominent? We had all these large-scale studies, and there's you know, thousands, many thousands of publications on microbiome, but... Um, because uh, metagenomics has gotten to a point where it's scalable and fairly cost-effective, it's almost like we're going to have to learn everything over again. Yeah, yeah. Such as medicine, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 for sure. Every 20 years, right? Yeah. Um, so can we assume from, uh, from your work at looking at the New York subway system and then you know, expanding space it stations. to all these, all these other places. What? Hospitals. Hospital uh, space, space stations, stations right? That's right. You've, you've actually done work on the, the International Space Station and found that to no surprise, right? It's not a sterile environment, nope, right? Yeah. Yeah, every environment we're in is, is a currently an accidentally engineered microbial ecosystem. And 
what's exciting is soon you can start to build it into you know models and also even engineer ecosystems mm. uh, to make them potentially more beneficial. Right? We have this vision for certain hospitals where the, maybe you could have probiotic rooms where the walls are designed uh, to not necessarily kill everything, but at least you know outcompete anything that might be uh, pathogenic. Uh, some, uh, some candida species, certain kinds of fungus have become really problematic. And, uh, that's yeah. That's the new. That's the new crisis, right? Yeah, this is this this. It uh, shows up on the walls, like yeah. the walls and the ceilings. It ends up being. Uh, we just mm. tested a hospital uh, in New Jersey. I won't say which one, but it had, mm. you know, we could see there's a patient that we could see the patient had uh, the candida species, and then we said, well, let's see. We sampled the room as well, and it was uh, literally all over the room. So you know, we have to start thinking about these. Uh, mm. The environment itself is also a factor. It's like walking into a hotel room with a black light. Yeah. <laughs> don't, <laughs> don't 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 do it. Don't do it. <laughs> Be careful what you what you're asking for, right? So can we can we assume then that uh, our homes, our work environments, et cetera, have their own unique microbial populations as well? And and if we are not well and we're trying to change our microbiome, might we need to change those environments as well? Yeah, uh, I think the data show absolutely yes. I'd say Mm. like we've seen even each of the cities that we've been sampling in the past uh, three years each have their own you know, species that show up only in certain cities or only in certain countries. There, there are unique ecosystems uh, in every, everywhere you go, every home, every office, uh, every bathroom. You know, they're, they're their own small niches. And if you want them to be part of disease, you have to monitor that as part of your model. But if you want them to be part of your sort of health profile, they should also be a component of that as well. Yeah, I think it's really causing us to go back to the... Uh hygiene hypothesis yeah, for a lot yeah. of these diseases, right? So we know people come over from India and China, uh, autoimmune disease uh, prevalence or incidence goes up, and uh, still not exactly clear, clear why that's the case, but one thing that is clear is that we're in a particularly sterile uh, environment, and we do know that stimulation of the immune system with microbes is has therapeutic benefits. In fact, in uh, Crohn's disease, there was a clinical trial for uh, pig whipworm, a helmet mm-hmm. yep. therapy where you get the right stimulation. And again, I almost think of it as that, uh, you know, that topographic map, right? There's a different sort of energy state you got to put your <laughs> immune system into with a given a given perturbation, right? right? So, Or even most of my favorite work on this is you think about allergies. Like if you have a child that's starting to become allergic to peanuts, the first instinct for any parent is that, well, I see something harming my child, I'll get the thing that's harming. Right, avoid it forever. Progeny, sure. Get it, out of the, get it out of the house, get mm-hmm. it you know, out of the, anywhere in that child's life. But ironically, it is the worst thing you can do for the long-term yes. risk for peanut allergies. It's better to have mm-hmm. low-level exposure to peanut a- antigens and some of the allergens, uh, in, in especially in the first five years of life. Yeah. Uh, so two different studies have done this, published in the last three years, yeah. that uh, are really counterintuitive. But, but it really underscores the, the strength of the hygiene hypothesis that mm-hmm. you need... Mm-hmm. A lot of exposure, especially when you're young. You know, there's still big questions of like, well, do you, do you, you know, you don't need you don't need exposure to Ebola. There are some things you don't need exposure to. Yeah. But, yeah. but writ large, the you know, playing in the dirt and general exposure to germs uh, that are not uh, awfully pathogenic is actually good for you. Yeah, in my house, I have kids, and you know, after reading all the studies, we went from the the 10 second rule of the 30 second rule to the five to 10 minutes <laughs> <laughs> for food. Wait, it's been there yeah. five, 10 minutes or less, you can yeah. still eat it. You know, has, so, has, yeah. has the dog licked it yet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, even there, and even if it has, I don't know. Work from uh, like Jack Gilbert's published paper showing that having people that have dogs in their houses that have generally healthier microbiomes, and the assumption yeah. is the dogs bring in things from outside, and it's in the dog's mouth, and so yeah. it's actually... Uh, the dog might even help in that. Right, you're sense. sharing yeah, the microbiome so. with your dog, and it's licking you in the face yeah. and all that. So it's um, yeah, it really is uh, you know that you want to have as much exchange as you can. So so you guys you guys have uh, like I said you had hobbies, you have spouses as well, you mm-hmm. have kids. 
Um, with all of your work, and, and I think I know the answer, but I'm going to ask you anyway. With, with all of your work, how do you not be just a total freaked out germaphobe when it comes to uh, to your kids? And you already alluded to it, you know, with the 5, 10, minute. 30, 10 minute, 10 minute rule now. Um, it just can't become the five day rule because then other things yeah. will start to grow on that. You know, but the... Uh, I, I, yeah, yeah, I think it just comes from actually, you know, on one hand, knowledge is or against uh, ignorance is bliss when it comes to a lot of things in medicine. I yeah. mean, uh, <laughs> even I remember taking uh, med school courses and learning about the you know RAS system where your you know, renin angiotensin aldosterone system where your kidneys and lungs and everything, and thinking how, how many complex things need to happen for me to have one heartbeat, yeah. and the mm-hmm. fact that a BPO mm-hmm. so that can drive you neurotic. Oh and, yeah, you know, but but. Um, also, at the same time, understanding uh, your immune system and how it works and just how, you know, the billions of years of, of evolution have led to a really uh, amazing adaptable uh, system. And, and I think really what it gets to is this concept of uh, uh, hormesis, which is what we talked about before with a little bit with the hygiene hypothesis, yeah. is that constantly challenging your physiology and keeping it in a state where it can adapt to future uh, insults is really the the key to sort of at least uh, you know maintaining health. Sort of the what what doesn't kill you what makes you stronger. Make you stronger. Yeah, you're getting getting small amounts of various things yep. that that have a stimulatory effect or exactly. regulatory effect within the body. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, and I guess to to think about the, how I view the, the germs now is I, I mean I think ignorance is bliss for some people, but I think. You know, knowledge is is comfort in a sense that I like. Now that I know what's there, I'm actually very comfort. I'm I'm, I'm not. Uh, I'll take uh, you know comfort over ignorant bliss any day of the week and twice on Sunday. Because now that I yeah. know that statistically, almost everything that's there is generally commensals or really non pathogenic organisms that are probably on my hands and fingers and and you know skin anyway. Mm-hmm. So. I think it's, um, yeah. Oh, and that the bacteria are working for us yeah, in many yeah. ways. So, right, this gets in, into, uh, you know, uh, the prebiotics and things like this. So, like, instead of, now, we, now I want to feed them. Yeah, right. Like, I want to keep them healthy because they're on our side, yes, right, because yeah. they're, they're right. really uh, working with us. So you're not going to hit the hand sanitizer every time you go in the grocery store? Uh, no, no, I do it from time to time, I'll right. admit, when the, in, in cold season. But cold, yeah. <laughs> yeah. cold season especially, or, like, yeah. in hospital environments, it's still yeah. uh, recommended yeah. because they're the, you're, it's a dense place where a lot of people are by definition sick or feeling sick so right yeah. uh, uh or being treated you know uh, so it, it's uh, there are places where you still want to um, avoid you know pathogens or people that if someone has you know bloodshot eyes and is coughing and sneezing maybe grab the hand sanitizer yeah, yeah. don't go lick them yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> there's certain people you shouldn't lick yeah. it's a, yeah, yeah. we can put that list on the website yeah. Yeah. people not to lick yeah. <laughs> it's important medical questions so t- tell us if you would a little bit about a little bit more about longevity i mean you guys have thrown the word out there a bunch but tell us a little bit more about this uh this organism if you will of longevity yeah, I mean, from my perspective, uh, I'm a, we were, I was excited to start Longevity because, again, as someone with a, a chronic disease, just realizing that there was all this great research we were doing in the traditional biomedical research arena, uh, academic medical centers, pharma, et cetera, and that it takes you know decades for that to reach uh, individuals. Uh, but that, you know, with the rapidly decreasing cost of, of next-gen sequencing, uh, genetics, microbiome, et cetera, that we had a great opportunity to bring the science of precision health into the consumer, more consumer realm to, to have a, a faster impact on patients. And I think what distinguishes, or individuals, not, not patients, <laughs> on individuals, um, but what distinguishes us, I think, from a lot that's out there is to create a platform where not only do we help you learn more about your body and, and how we can 
know, move you to a healthier state, but actually to provide you with a solution. And this is why we're partnered with Thorn and, and we'll partner with other companies, but um, that we can actually deliver the solution to you rather than just providing you a sheet of paper that is sort of a recreational look at your, at your health. Or, or a ream of paper. Or a ream yeah. of paper, yeah. yeah Flip yeah, through this yeah, and yeah. try to see if you can figure so, this out. Yeah. And by the way, to equip you with the tools to that once we send you those solutions, say it's Thorn supplements or whatever, that you are then empowered to determine for yourself if it's working or not. We're going to give you tools to say, oh, did this really shift my microbiome? Did this uh, really lower my blood sugar or whatever it was supposed to do? So, so you can do serial testing at that point uh, yeah. to see if whatever you've done, supplementation, lifestyle, diet, whatever, has changed your microbiome and, and, and in what fashion. And then, of course, you have your own information that, yes, I feel better. Yes, I'm, you know, uh, besides the, the uh, biomarkers and, and other things you might be testing, like the blood sugar, yeah. Well, and it really is it's a, a complete health intelligence platform is what Longevity is built on. Is, and we talked a lot about microbiome today, but also it links, you know, genetic information, uh, metabolomic and sort of blood work, what's happening for very dynamic features inside um, your body. And we all then become metrics for seeing how well is it doing. So not just a PDF that you flip through and think, all right, well, I've got some mutations or I've got some, some bacteria in me, which are generally not that helpful, but to actually have you know these molecular quantified metrics give you a direction of what to do and then to come back and actually see is it working. So I think we like to call it the virtuous cycle of, of, of knowledge and, and actionability, and that's what you know, the platform is built on. And again, not just one time point or one modality, but mm-hmm. actually is a complete integrated platform uh, that also works over time. And that's, uh, that's something we've, we've worked on in our labs and we've been you know, studying for years and published hundreds of papers on, but now actually getting it to people so they can begin to use the information and really being you know, best-in-class technologies in medicine to people um, you know, everywhere is a, kind of part of the democratization of this technology. So how do you get from uh, trillions of data points, let's say, <laughs> to uh, information that someone can understand, first of all, that a physician can understand, that a patient can understand, or an individual? Yeah. as you said, uh, can understand uh, and, and then utilize and make decisions from that? How do, how do you get from one to the other? Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's actually super hard. So we you know, want to be honest, that that's probably the hardest part, right, is how do you, yeah. how do you take that information? How do you uh, package it up in a way that's, that's consumer-friendly? Um, people don't like, humans in general don't like lots of information. I mean, this is why, uh, you know, In-N-Out Burger's great, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's... and people are very happy there, not only because of the good food and shakes, but uh, fewer choices, right? right. Like, yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think there's a small number of people who are probably like, you know, Chris and I that really want to dig into the data and really, you know, manage, make a hobby out of, you know, digging into the health information. And, and for those people, we do empower them with the platform. But really, I think it's a how do you make people's data work for them and work for their health. So it's really about creating a, you know, a trusted platform that is in synthesizing. There's, there's two ways, right? So there's everything that's been published um, and known out in the universe that's scattered across, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands uh, and, or if not millions of, of PDFs and papers. So how do we pull that in and synthesize that into and structure that so we can get knowledge out of the information and mm-hmm. make that actionable? So that's one thing we're doing. And then two, as we start to learn from individuals, you know, you can imagine that you, there'll be sort of a, a, a digital twin of you in the database, right? That, that you won't know. Mm-hmm. It's not a real person, but, but based on all the other individuals we have, we can start to say, oh, well, people like, like you who have a, an information profile like you, they really did well on mm-hmm. this and this. So that's sort of the, the second wave of information. But, you know, getting back to your point about how you package it up yeah. um, mm-hmm. in, in a way that's consumer friendly. I mean, this is on one hand part of the partnership with Orn, who has experience in this, but it's also something where we're constantly evolving and learning with our customers. 
Yeah, well, and the, the more data, like like with a lot of machine learning, the more data you acquire, the more powerful the algorithms are, the more yeah. accurate they become. Yeah. So it's actually, it's really, you know, invigorating to come to, a, you know, work at a, being at a company where every, I feel like, empirically, it's not really an opinion, it's a fact that every week the company is actually improving uh, because the models are getting better, the database is getting larger, more customers uh, and more data sets give us a better predictive power. So it's, uh, yeah, it's actually. Yeah, I think better. an analogy that might work here is, um, if you go to uh, people managing their retirement. I don't know anyone that day trades their 401k, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so what do you do is, I, I use Schwab Intelligent Advisor, right? I set a target uh, for my financial health, yeah. and then the system goes into action. It tells me what to do, mm-hmm. right? So I think this is really the, the goal of what we're building. So you're going from their trillions of data points uh, yeah. to, to get some manageable, manageable uh, insights yourself yeah. financially, yeah. What information is gathered in, uh, in the longevity testing? Uh, what information is gathered and, and what do you tell people? So it starts with a, you know, when you log on, you, get, you order kits. Uh, we basically log on, set up a profile, some basic bi- biomedical information, background, and then we send it a mixture of, you know, currently the first kit that was launched was the gut bio, the expanded metagenomics test. So it's focused on microbiome now, but the uh, whole genome sequencing uh, is just launching a soft launch that also we're starting to integrate genetic and microbi- microbiome data and then later this year we'll get uh, what's called metabolomic profiles or what sort of the molecules in your bloodstream and how are they responding so the platform will be anchored on those three real pillars of information to build a better better profile but we want to get uh, additional information over time as well so wearable devices that work from lab 100 that Joel's built uh, in his lab is you know a lot of other measures of physiology balance uh, general dexterity you want more phenotypes so we can see what is your body actually uh, doing, what's, how's it moving, how's it functioning, and link all that information to the molecular data. So not just not just static testing that, no. uh, you know, okay, what's there and then what what is it doing as well? Yeah. And then you you mentioned sort of the uh, the triumvirate here of the, the holy grail of lab yeah. testing, which is mm-hmm. looking at, at uh, metabolomics, mm-hmm. looking at your microbiome, and looking at genetics, yeah. and we've you've just expanded, you've just thrown an exponential expansion there into the amount of information mm-hmm. that you have to somehow uh, figure out and correlate and see what it's doing. Yeah. Um, it, it's it's fascinating, but if we can uh, if we can figure that out, mm-hmm. uh, if we can make some actionable insights from all of that information, I think that's going to be. I mean, that you guys know that's. That's uh, that is precision medicine, personalized medicine, uh, to the extreme. Yeah, and precision wellness actually. Joel coined that term. Mm-hmm. It's very. We were just talking about this, uh, you know, as we're just sitting down here. Is that there's a lot of focus on precision medicine once you're sick, but very yeah. little emphasis mm-hmm. on how do you avoid getting sick, or if you're well, how do you stay well? And so a lot of the one how do you not get there? Yeah, yeah. and and also the importance of these dynamic measures. So again, you know, we'll have genetics, but blood and microbiome, which are which change over time. You know, because there are a lot of Precision medicine companies yeah. uh, call themselves precision medicine companies that use genetics alone. Right, but uh, yeah, it's, it's I just, don't know how you how you could. It's just sheet music. <laughs> yeah, uh, it doesn't uh, you know it, it doesn't tell you how the song is being played. It doesn't change unless you get cancer. Yeah, <laughs> for the most part, your germline uh, DNA, right? So that's not that it, it, it is useful information, but without those dynamic. Uh, sets of information to layer on top of it. It's not that useful. Yeah, it's it's all interesting information and, and helpful information. But yeah, just just looking at the genetics, you can you can see what might be happening basically, right? right? right. You can't you don't know how those genes are being expressed specifically and exactly. what molecules they're uh, they're creating. And like you said, it's you don't know what's going on with the orchestration right. here. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So you guys, you obviously you don't 
recommend testing just once because these things change, right? And so as people's journey changes, uh, let's say, um, these things can change as well. So you, you need to do serial testing. What do you recommend as far as a timeline? Okay, you do a, you do a baseline test once, you, do, you get some actionable insights, you do some things, uh, lifestyle, diet, supplementation, et cetera. When do you test again? I'd say it depends a bit on what a person's goals are mm-hmm. and where they're coming from. So you can imagine on one hand there's the just generally healthy person that wants to sort of see where they're at. And in that case, they're almost building a, a virtual stool bank, as Chris likes to, to talk about. You know, it's like I'm going to get my gut profile now mm-hmm. and know where I'm at now when I'm healthy so that when I'm sick in the future, right, I'll know where I was, yeah. what's healthy for me. Mm-hmm. So that's one end. And maybe that person takes it once and mm-hmm. waits a couple of years or once a year or less. Um, but you know, on the other hand, someone with IBS or something like that, right? And it, you know, they're probably going to want to get assessed, and then they're going to want to decide what what do I want to change? Yeah. Um, and and then try something out, and then uh, retest. So that could be as early as you know, thirty days. Yeah. And a clinical trial we just finished earlier this year, uh, we did you know testing at, at baseline at zero, then at fifteen days did a questionnaire, and then resequenced and sampled at thirty days. And there we can see already really dynamic you know, differences at 30 days out, and, and so a lot of people really improved over about 90% of the people in the trial improved their sort of their outcomes in terms of how they felt, and also we can see the change in the ecosystem in their gut. So, for, for people really actively trying to improve uh, an existing sort of dysbiosis, that you know more more frequency is better. But uh, for people that are healthy, uh, the annual is probably good. And, and the clinical test that you did, the, the 30-day trial, wasn't a bunch of people who were, quote, healthy. Right. These were people that, that uh, had some symptomatology. They mm-hmm. had right. IBS symptoms, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, yeah, but basically, we did have a subset that were healthy controls, but the mm-hmm. uh, you know, majority were for inflammatory bowel syndrome of varying kinds and a couple IBD uh, patients as well. What kind of insights did you, did you guys see from that? Did you see any specific patterns in these folks? Of, of the type of microbes that were there or weren't there or what they were doing? Yeah, actually, a lot of uh, some of the really exciting things of the platform is we, can, we already have new potential, new species that showed up in the data where when people improved, we could see certain species increase in their abundance that look like these might be sort of beneficial actors to mm-hmm. decrease inflammation and improve sort of gut health. And so we actually, we already have a, kind of a discovery platform, many good candidates uh, that we're looking at now at culturing or putting into mixtures as prebiotics or probiotics. Uh, to try for, for the next phase. And so it's really, you know, we can already see, we also compared the literature, so like, let's look at all known species that increase or decrease risk of inflammation. And we confirmed hundreds of papers uh, of species that we know in the literature that should change. Uh, and also about 5% of the papers, we think we see a slightly different direction for some species, mm-hmm. which, which is not surprising because no. people have different genetic backgrounds, different uh, physiology, different lifestyles that are all in play. But we, um, we saw, you know, things we expected to see plus a lot more that are really novel, which is pretty exciting. Now I did the test, and uh, oh, I great, great. Yeah. so I got to find out uh, the population that was there and what wasn't there, mm-hmm. and so no basically the the information yeah. yeah the information that I saw was that I had a pretty good diversity of species of species uh, it could be better mm-hmm. uh, that um, the the microbes that were there uh, I did get one surprise in that I had C diff mm-hmm. I've n- never had symptoms ever yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm just one of those. One of those people that's carrying it around and it's mm-hmm. not expressing itself. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, so I got to see is population, diversity, mm-hmm. uh, inflammation score, mm-hmm. right? Uh, which mine was was pretty low. Mm-hmm. Uh, a constipation score, diarrhea score, mm-hmm. uh, and this was all the gut bio, which mm-hmm. is focused uh, really on on that on that type of information. Um, in the future, what are you looking at? 
uh, I think we'll be able to bring in, particularly from the gut uh, bio aspect, um, things related to uh, immunity and metabolism in particular. Because uh, there's very now very strong correlations between gut microbiome and, and glucose control and, and glucose response mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. postprandial glucose uh, response. So, yeah, that's that's some fascinating yeah. stuff right there. And yeah. some of the phages that we talked about earlier, yeah. and, uh, we'll sh- but they show up now, but we have a lot more details coming out on them. Uh, plus, also the biochemistry of what they're what they're making, what's in the gut. So we, we do a little bit of that now, but there's a lot more that's coming soon on, on what we know. Um, so some of it, but like the vitamin synthesis that, that's in there, the current report that would be expanded a lot. And so, uh, and then of course, linking it to host genetics and, my, and metabolomics will be really, I think, the the big leap forward. Certainly will. Yeah. Um, thanks, guys. Is there anything else you guys want to add? I think this is a question, a bit of a, almost like a liberty. Like people should feel really empowered to study any molecule in, in their own body, and so I think this is a platform by which that can be possible. So, the, the more people that uh, feel empowered and uh, yeah. I think take health in, into their own hands, the better. That's yeah, a great, and, great point, Chris. And, yeah, and I think it's that you know we don't have all the answers, even though we have lots of, of uh, degrees and publications. <laughs> that the, our goal here is actually to build a platform and a service that really helps uh, our customers. Do discovery with us because yeah. this is a, a space that the science, lots of science needs to be done and uh, we can provide value and insights along the way but really this is a long term partnership with our customers to, yeah. to build the science of prevention Absolutely. excellent alright thanks guys appreciate you being on the podcast and hopefully we can talk again soon okay. thank you thanks